morning. It is good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here today. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And if you need a Bible, we have some on that back table there. Uh, you can take one of those home. Those are for you to keep if you don't have one. Uh, or, if or if your phone happens to die during service, you can grab one of those too. Uh, we want to be people of the book. Amen? Amen. Matthew chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. Now, 22 years ago, in, in the year 2000, uh, doctors performed an innovative procedure on a man named Mike May. Uh, Mike May had been blinded by a chemical explosion when he was three years old, blind for almost his entire life. But doctors had found uh, a way through corneal implants and some stem cell procedures to reverse blindness uh, in, in causes of chemical explosion or, or physical damage to the eye. Mike's vision was restored, and it was really a revolutionary operation. Um, however, even three years after that operation, Mike May still had struggles with his vision. Right After all, he had been blind for most of his life, and his brain had adapted. It had been altered by not having to use sight. Right? He, he couldn't see things in three dimensions. He couldn't recognize people by their faces. He wasn't blind anymore, but his blindness had affected the way he perceived the world around him even after his vision had been restored. His blindness shaped how he understood the world in which he lived, just like the sight that you and I may have shapes the way we perceive the world around us as well. Not only is this true with physical sight and blindness, it is also true with spiritual sight and blindness. And in our text in Matthew's Gospel this morning, we will see two different responses to Christ that reveal two different states of spiritual sight or blindness. And ultimately, we will see that while physical sight is a great thing to have, the most important kind of sight a person could possess is spiritual sight. Let's read our text starting in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of God. Let us pray as we come to it this morning. <coughs> our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, that it uh, enlightens the eyes, that it makes wise the simple. Lord, that it restores the soul. Lord, what a gracious and amazing and powerful gift we have in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, physically in our hands it is, it is but a book, yet the words it contains are used by you, O Lord, intended by you down to uh, the very word itself, used by you through the Holy Spirit to give us faith to teach us about Christ, to reveal our own sin, our own need for Christ to us, to instruct us regarding who you are 
how we might be saved, how to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. And in this book as well, Lord, the overarching uh, thing is the story of your redemption. That is the grand narrative of your word. And Lord, as we come to this, this small part of that narrative this morning, we pray that you, would, uh, that you would work in our midst, that you would reveal to us the kind of sight we have regarding Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray this morning that you would uh, open the, the spiritual eyes, Lord, of all who hear your word today, that they may behold Christ by faith. Glorify your Son today, Lord. Help me to preach your word faithfully and rightly in a way that is honoring to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to see two things in our text today. First, we will see the blind see by faith, verses 27 through 31. And second, we will see that the seeing are blinded by sin. Let's jump back up to verse 27. I, I mentioned last week that uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's gospel contain three sets of three miracles. These are the last two miracles in the last set of three. Right? So we're coming to the end of this, uh, this part of Matthew's gospel that highlights the authority of Christ displayed through his miracles, his power. That was calming the storm, casting out demons, forgiving sins, right? a number of different things. And we come to the final two miracles this morning. If you recall, last week we saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead and heal the woman with the issue of blood. And we saw that Jesus was the Savior that both Jairus, a man in, in high social standing, and the woman with the issue of blood who would have been a social outcast, they both needed the same Savior. We saw that last week. Matthew picks up here in verse 27 as Jesus is leaving Jairus' house. The crowd is still there. Uh, following Jesus. They, they had come to watch the girl be brought back to life. Uh, and, and, and so they see Jesus leave and they're following him. But Jesus' work is not finished yet. Matthew tells us that he's, he's leaving there. Two blind men approach Christ. They start following him. Two blind men. Now blindness was very common in the ancient world and it still is in many third world countries. Um, when my boys were born, uh, you may remember this from the birth of your children or grandchildren. Uh, they, they put ointment on the eyes of the, of the baby, right? And that's to prevent an eye infection. But in Jesus' day, no such thing was available. And so it was very often in unhygienic uh, you know, birth conditions, right, uh, that a, a baby's eyes would become infected and that would lead to lifetime blindness. And this was irreversible and it left many individuals either in the care of their family or begging on the street. Blindness was a very common but very debilitating condition in the ancient world. And there's actually many accounts of Jesus interacting with the blind throughout the New Testament, but this is the first account we see in Matthew's Gospel. It's the first time we've encountered this in Matthew's Gospel. Now these blind men have a reason for approaching Christ. There is something that they need, something they desire from Jesus. They cry out to Him, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. They're calling out to Christ for mercy, for the healing of their, their physical blindness. Right? They need healing from Christ. They're trying to get his attention so that they can bring this request to him and, and maybe be healed. Maybe have sight again. 
And this is consistent with the other healing accounts we've seen in Matthew's Gospel so far, people bringing their needs to Christ. But there is something different here that we haven't encountered yet, and that's the title that they use for Jesus. What do they call him? They call him Son of David. Son of David. We, we haven't heard this term yet in Matthew's Gospel, but it's actually going to occur again and again and again. More in Matthew's Gospel than any others. This is a very meaningful phrase to a first century Jew. Because ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, it's a messianic title. It's a title that speaks of the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back to the Old Testament. And God's interactions with King David. Turn back with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And we'll see where this, this phrase really is originating from. 1 Chronicles chapter 17 will be in verse 7 through 14. 1 Chronicles 17. A little bit of uh, backstory. Uh, King David has brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And uh, the, the Ark at this point has been in the tabernacle, a giant tent. And David thinks to himself, it's not right that I would dwell in this palace while God, his presence would be in this tent. That just seems backwards to David, and so David wants to build a glorious temple for God. That's the desire of his heart, to build this glorious temple for God. And, and God appreciates the sentiment from David, but sends Nathan the prophet to David with a message. And, and the first thing he tells David is that you are not going to be the one who's going to build me that temple, David, because you are a man of war, so it's not going to be you. But he does pick up in verse 7, and there is something else that God promises to David too. Now therefore, the prophet speaks to David, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you've gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you, David, a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. And listen to what he says next. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house, David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that's King Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. It's the promise, the covenant, God makes to David. Now, as we think about the whole story of the Bible, right? Who is it that builds the physical temple for God? That's King Solomon, right? Which he is David's son. But this passage cannot be and is not completely and fully and finally fulfilled in King Solomon because what happens with King Solomon? He turns away from the Lord and the Lord, uh, so to speak, divides the kingdom and, and pushes off Solomon. Solomon's kingdom was not the kind of kingdom described here in this passage, one that is forever one of peace. Solomon's was one of conflict. So this passage partially is fulfilled 
with Solomon's building of the temple, but there is a far greater reality here, a far greater king that would be coming descended from David. Right? God promised David he would raise up one of David's children as the king who would reign over God's people forever, who would have a special relationship with God and under whose kingdom there would be peace without end. This figure is the son of David, the son of David, a descendant from David's line who would be the perfect king. The prophet Jeremiah describes this kind of uh, figure as well. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Again, the son of David is the king who reigns over God's people and brings perfect peace, whose kingdom never ends. The son of David, in other words, is the Messiah. That's who he is, right? He's the deliverer of God's people that, that in, in Jesus' day, the people have been waiting for and, and looking for. When is he coming? And Matthew actually has, has clued us into this in the very first verse of Matthew. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew's already connected the dots for us from the beginning, and he's doing it here as well. Now these blind men, think for a minute, they haven't read Matthew's gospel. They haven't read Matthew 1.1, right? They don't know Jesus' genealogy. They haven't even seen his face. But here's the amazing thing. Even though they are physically blind, they can see spiritually. They can see by faith this Jesus is the son of David. And so they address him that way. Now this, this spiritual sight that they have is not because they're more naturally perceptive than others. It's not because they have a better grasp on the Old Testament than others. This spiritual sight is because of the divine and sovereign grace of God by which he's granted them faith. It's a supernatural and spiritual sight and perception of who Jesus Christ really is is according to Scripture. Their lack of physical sight is certainly no obstacle to God's salvation. Praise God for that. There is no obstacle to the salvation of our God. And Jesus hears them. He hears them and he goes into a house as we see in verse 28. And we don't know whose house this is. Uh, maybe it's Jesus' house. Maybe it's somebody else's house. We don't know. But apparently it is not a problem that Jesus is there. And the blind men follow him inside. They go in the house, and now they're all away from the crowds. The crowds are outside. It's just Jesus and these two blind men. And Jesus, at this point in, in Matthew's gospel, seems to prefer being away from the crowds. And once they're inside, Jesus asks these blind men a question. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to do this, he asks. What's Jesus doing? He's, he's testing their faith, isn't he? You call me son of David, but do you really believe that I am able to do this? They're asking for mercy and healing, but do they really believe that Jesus can do this? Now, Jesus knows the answer to this question already, but the testing of their faith isn't for his sake. It's for theirs. It's for theirs. God often does this in our lives, too. He often asks us the implicit question, do you really believe I am able to? to do this, X, Y, Z, to reveal either the strength or weakness of our faith to ourselves before he acts. That's what, 
1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how through difficult situations, through trials, the genuineness of our faith is tested. It is proven. And Jesus is doing the same thing for these blind men here. Do they really believe he can do this? And their response is telling. It's simple. It's two words. Yes, Lord. That's what they say. Yes, Lord. Nothing more. Nothing less. They do believe that he is able. And here, too, they refer to him as Lord. And we've seen that title used with Christ throughout this gospel, and, and it is used by those who actually believe in Jesus. He's referred to as teacher in some cases, or rabbi in other cases. But by those who believe in Christ, it's always Lord. Right? These are true disciples. Their faith is genuine. Their discipleship is sincere. They have true faith. But here's what's amazing. Have they seen Jesus do an actual miracle? They haven't seen Jesus do anything. They don't even know what he looks like. They are simply relying, all they have, right, is what they've heard about Christ. That's all they have. Maybe they've heard his teaching, right, which is, which is good. They have his teaching and they have the accounts that they've heard from other people. But they have not seen a single thing with their own eyes. And yet they believe. Maybe you've encountered somebody like this. Well, you know, I believe all this stuff about God and Jesus if I could see it with my own eyes, right? If only I could just see it with my own eyes. I only believe in what I can see. And maybe some of you here this morning, right, think that at some level. But that was not an obstacle for these two men. Their physical eyes didn't work at all. That's not how faith works at all. After all, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says, faith comes from seeing. No, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now we can include in there, you know, with hearing, reading the Bible, right, or, or, or Braille, right? If, you know, you get the point, right? It's through the message. It is through the words. It is not through sight. Not once does the Bible say that faith comes by seeing. Not a single place. Uh, and in fact, the Israelites in the Old Testament saw some of the most amazing works of God, and they were faithful. There's a, a quick, but I think important side note. This is one reason why the Reformers believe the second commandment, right, you shall not make a graven image and, and worship it, actually prohibits depictions of Jesus, which you could apply that to paintings, movies, TV shows, books, whatever, because faith does not come by seeing. We're not sought to strengthen our faith by seeing. We, we know God not through a physical portrayal of Christ, which will always be inaccurate and always misrepresent, misrepresent Jesus, but through the word of Christ, through hearing it. Right? That's what defines true spiritual sight. Believing in what we have heard, like these blind men had. And Jesus, by his actions, commends their faith. He commends their spiritual sight in the next verse, verse 29. He, he touches their eyes and then says to them, according to your faith, be it done to you. He acknowledges their faith. He confirms and validates their faith. They do, in fact, believe. Now, Jesus is not saying this is done in proportion to their faith. Like, if you believe more, it can be done, right? Not, not, not that, but it's in response to the presence of faith at all, however great or little it may be, according to your faith, not in proportion to your faith, but according to your faith, be it done to you. Right, consider the way that these two blind men have approached Christ. They have done so in faith. 
James writes about the way that we should approach God with our requests. He, he writes that we should ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. There was no hypocrisy, no doubting when these men approached Christ with their request and they received what they asked for from him. Now, that's not to say that Jesus will always give us what we ask for if we ask with 100% faith, per se. It's simply to say that in making our requests in faith without doubting that God can or will answer them rightly, right, without asking for those things in double-mindedness, means we will receive what we need, and yes, at times, what we ask for. And it is true that often when we ask with full faith, we are asking for that which accords with God's will as it is carried out. And so it is that the the request of these two blind men is fully granted in verse 30. Their eyes were opened, Matthew tells us. Instantly they are healed. They can see, and not just their sight, But their brains too. We we heard about Mike May's brain was adapted, right? From not having sight. Well, these men, it's not just their physical eyes or their optic nerve or their cornea. It is their whole system. They are fully and finally healed and can see again perfectly. I'm pretty sure Jesus gave them 20-20 vision, right? This is a complete and comprehensive healing here. This is a miracle that even science cannot duplicate. Now they have both spiritual and physical sight. An amazing work of Jesus to heal them. And, 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 you know, if you or and I were to do this, <clears throat> we would probably say, hey, you need to tell everybody about this. Everybody's got to know. Right? You have to hear about this thing. that I, But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does something a bit unexpected, a little surprising. Matthew tells us he gives them a very stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone anyone about this. And that might leave us scratching our heads. Don't we want more people to know about Jesus and all these things he's done? Don't tell anyone about this. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us why Jesus gives this command. He doesn't tell them, or he doesn't tell us why Jesus gives this warning to the two blind men. He just tells them to keep it a secret. That's all we know. Now, if I had to venture a guess, my guess would be the response of the crowds has just been to focus on the signs instead of the Savior, and that Jesus is trying to mitigate that perhaps. But we don't know. We don't know. All we know is that Jesus gives them an instruction, a warning. And these uh, two blind men, having full faith in Christ, they obey Jesus. And they don't say a word. Nope, that's not what happens, right? Verse 31, they go away and they spread his fame all throughout the district. They go and tell everybody about what has just happened. Now, let's think about this for a minute here. While the faith of these two men is to be commended, and it is genuine faith, praise God, their lack of obedience to Christ is not to be commended. At the end of the day, these two men are disobeying what Jesus has just told them. Now, I'm sure they were zealous, right? They were fired up and excited. How could you not be? How could you not just be absolutely amazed at what Jesus had just done to you? So they're very zealous, right? And that zeal, that's all well and good. That's, that's a good thing, right? But while they are zealous, they are not obedient. Right? They're so fired up about what they're going to do for Jesus 
that they've come up with their own idea of what is best to do for Jesus. And they've ignored what Jesus has actually told them to do, what his actual will is, right? Uh, and sometimes we can be like the blind men, right? Maybe you can relate to them. You have genuine faith. You get fired up about good things. But in your zeal, you neglect to search the scriptures or to hear the scriptures about what God has actually commanded you to do. Right? Our zeal can lead us to have these grand notions of, this is what God wants me to do. This is what I should do. This is how I should live for Jesus. But what about what he's already told us in very clear and uncertain terms? Our, our zeal must be accompanied by obedience, right? Be fired up for Jesus. But let that zeal for him lead you to be zealous to do his will according to his word. Not like the two blind men, right? Again, their zeal is good. But Jesus is displeased by disobedient zeal. But even with this flaw that the blind men have, their response is still quite different from the response we see in the next portion of our text today. And we've seen the blind see by faith, but now we see that the seeing are blinded by sin. Verse 32 and 34. Now, the pacing of Matthew's story is picking up here pretty quick, right? We, we've had person after person come up to Jesus. Right? He's, he's not catching a break here. As these two blind men are leaving, right, as they're walking down the road, Who's next? A man possessed, oppressed, right, by a demon who is mute. He can't speak. Now, this man is probably not here of his own, uh, his own accord. He's, he's brought here by others, Matthew tells us. And unlike the blind men, he probably does not come seeking healing. I'm sure the demon that was possessing him would be very, very resistant to the idea. Um, and his muteness, Matthew tells us, is actually caused by the demon in him. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture, that demon possession can have physical effects as well that often look like illness. And despite the fact that this man, this mute, demon-possessed man, has not requested anything from Jesus, unlike the blind men, Jesus casts out the demon anyway. And, and, and again, that's another thing we see in Scripture. Whenever Jesus encounters a person possessed by a demon, he always casts out that demon regardless of the circumstances. And as soon as this is done, as soon as the spirit is cast out, Matthew tells us in verse 33, the mute man speaks. He's able to talk again. This is a wonderful thing. Jesus has restored sight. Now he's restored speech. Praise God, right? We see both the compassion and the authority of Jesus on display here. He's restored this man. That's a wonderful thing. But in these verses, we see two responses to Jesus' healing in verse 33 and verse 34 from the crowd, from the Pharisees. Two responses that are quite different from the response of the blind men that we just saw a minute ago. First, in verse 33, we see the response of the crowds. They, they watch this happen, and what does Matthew say? They marvel. They marvel at what they've seen. They marvel at this demon being cast out and this man being able to speak. They marvel at Jesus. And they say, never was anything seen like this in Israel. And they say, wow, this is amazing. They're genuinely amazed, no doubt about it. This is very similar to the response we saw from the crowd when the paralytic was forgiven of his sins and healed, right? The, the, the crowd, they're amazed. They marvel. They say, wow, this is incredible. But despite that, <clears throat> is marveling the response Jesus is looking for. It is not. It is not the primary nor necessary response 
to Jesus and his power. Now, that's not to say we should never marvel. Of course we should, right? We should be amazed at the power and goodness and character and work of our God. Absolutely. Right? It is not inappropriate to marvel. But when marveling is alone, when it's just marveling that's going on, that shows that there is something missing, that this crowd is blind to the fullness of who Christ is and their actual need for him. Right? Imagine you have an incurable disease and the doctor tells you, hey, listen, we have this brand new treatment. It will save your life. Just sign on this piece of paper. We'll get going. It's well documented. It's everything you need. You will be cured of this terminal disease. You say to the doctor, wow, doc, that's amazing. How do these scientists come up with these great things? And you just sit there and look at him, right? If, if that's all you do, wow, that's an amazing treatment, doc. But you never actually say, yeah, I'll take that, please. I need that, please. If you just marvel and you're just amazed and that's it, it will do you no good. It will do you no good. Well, it's essentially where the crowds are at. They see Jesus doing these incredible miracles. They've seen amazing things. They've heard Jesus' teaching. And instead of believing, which is what we've seen Jairus, the woman with the issue of blood, the blind men, the paralytic, on and on and on, what we've seen them do, instead of believing, the crowd simply marvels. And that's it. They don't actually come to Christ and say, I need this Jesus. I need him. They marvel, but they do not have faith. After all, what does Scripture tell us? Marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust Him alone as Redeemer to have confidence He alone can deliver from sin and Satan and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Only you are sufficient for me. That's a very different response than, wow, that that's amazing. Jesus is amazing. Versus saying, I need Christ. Now, friends, are you like that? Do you think about Jesus and you say he's awesome? Right? Everybody generally admires Jesus. But do you fail at the end of the day to actually believe in him and trust him and see your need for him, your personal need for him, not just as a, a historical religious figure, not as somebody who brings morality, not, not, not in a, a general sense, but your personal need in light of your sin against God to have a Savior who can redeem you. Do you see him that way? Do you behold him by faith? Because when we behold him by faith, then even our marveling and our amazement, fueled by faith, draws us closer to him. It doesn't keep him at arm's length as we just marvel at, at that cool thing over here. Right? Any response to Christ that's not filled with faith ultimately is not spiritually seeing. But there's actually a much worse response we see in this text. And that's in verse 34, the response of the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees have seen as many miracles as the crowd has. Right? They've seen amazing things done as well. They don't even marvel. They skip that. Right? What do they say instead? They accuse him. They don't marvel. They just accuse. The Pharisees, seeing this demon cast out, they say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Do you see what they're saying here? They're saying that Jesus casts out demons 
by using the power of the prince of demons. That's Satan, right? That's Satan. They're saying Jesus is on Satan's team and that the demons listen to Jesus because Jesus serves Satan. Can you think of a more blasphemous accusation that could be leveled against the Son of God than that? I cannot. Can you think of a more blasphemous accusation that could be leveled against the Holy Spirit? I cannot. And in fact, when Jesus deals with this accusation, because it's going to come again in Matthew 12, Jesus will label this kind of slanderous remark as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Attributing the redemptive work of God and the coming kingdom to Satan? That is the height of spiritual blindness. It is calling evil good and calling good evil. The Pharisees see with their eyes physically but they are completely spiritually blind and hard-hearted. They are living proof that even if God himself walked the earth for 30 years and did incredible miracles, that natural man left to himself would not believe. The Pharisees are proof of that. But the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees is actually something that is addressed by Jesus himself many times. <coughs> In a couple years when we get to Matthew 23, we're going to see, uh, yeah, you laugh, but it's not a joke. It's not a joke. Uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind five times in a short section. Again and again and again. In John's Gospel, Jesus says regarding the Pharisees, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It's just not the very thing we've seen in this passage. The reality is that the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees governs their response to what they see with their physical eyes. Right? The, the problem is not a lack of seeing. The problem is what's going on in the heart. That's always the source of our problems, and our sin is the heart. We, we've seen the response of the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel evolve from curiosity to criticism to now uh, ag accusation to blasphemy. And most of the Pharisees, it seems, are increasing in their hostility to Jesus. And from a human perspective, who would have known the Old Testament best? The Pharisees, who were supposed to be the highest religious figures. The Pharisees, who were renowned for their, their supposed devotion to God. The Pharisees, right? Of, of all people, the Pharisees should have been most ready to welcome the Messiah. Right? They had such great knowledge. But at the end of the day, mere knowledge will never take you from blindness to sight. Some of the best Bible scholars in history have been absolute unbelievers. Self-admitted, right? Many people read the Bible, all the while being spiritually blind. Now, Satan himself, right? This is the irony with what's going on here, but Satan himself plays a role in this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that um, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, there's two factors working in the hearts of people that keep them blind. You're not a Christian. These are at work in your heart, right? Satan blinds the spiritual sight of human beings, but the heart of man is also sinful as well. Right? God must open our eyes, spiritually speaking, to our need for Christ so that we might see his glory and turn to him in faith. That's all God's gracious work. Just like a blind man cannot restore his own physical sight, we cannot give ourselves spiritual sight. God must open our eyes to the glory of Christ. 
And ultimately, this text reveals there are two spiritual states that people fall into that will drastically affect their response to Jesus Christ. Those with spiritual sight who behold him by faith and those who are spiritually blind who either passively, right, yeah, he's not for me, or aggressively, I don't want to hear about Jesus again, reject Jesus and the gospel message. And and friend, you must consider what is your response to Christ? The Pharisees thought they were in great standing with God and yet they rejected Christ. You may be religious like the Pharisees, but are you spiritually blind to who Christ is and what he has done for you? And we must also remember in our own dealings with others that we too were once spiritually blind. And that God in his mercy saved us and restored our sight through regeneration and the gift of faith. And as he's done for us, he can do so for others. So consider an implication for your evangelism. We've all had conversations with people that we love deeply, that we care about deeply, or even complete strangers, where we have told them about Christ. We've given them the gospel. We can can see their need for it, right? Just as we see our need for it. And they go, well, that's just just not my thing. A heartbreaking response. And, and there's a temptation in us to want to try to make that person see, right? Like, like to try to pull back the blinders ourselves. But brothers and sisters, we cannot do that. We cannot persuade people into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot argue people into the kingdom of heaven. We should make defense for the truth to be sure. But what should our response be when somebody, ah, it's not for me, or, or even tells us, I don't want to hear about it again. What do we do? We turn to the God who opens blind eyes. And we ask him to do the work that we cannot do. Also to be reminded that the way that we deal with those who are spiritually blind should be in a compassionate way. A compassionate way, remembering where we once were. Not looking down on others, but as one blind man who has been healed, speaking to another blind man who has not yet. As he has done for us, he can do so to others. You may be familiar with the story of John Newton. Born in 1725, raised in a Christian home, so to speak, by a Christian mother who died when he was seven years old. John Newton joined his father on the high seas and and, uh, plunged headlong into the life of a sailor, right? A, A life that Newton himself describes as blasphemous and injurious. He had no interest in Christ, no interest in Christianity. He had a reputation as a blasphemer. He would go on to become the captain of a slave ship. Uh, a, a trade that in England at the time was viewed as vile. America had to catch up to the UK in that regard. But even though Newton had this great career as a slave ship captain, the Lord had other plans for John Newton. And during a particularly rough storm, opened his eyes to his need for Christ. Newton saw the mortality of his own life. He thought about what he had heard from his mother or books that he had read and rejected. And he believed in Jesus. He repented of his sin and went on to devote his life to Christ and to ending the slave trade in England. The very same blasphemous ship captain would eventually write the most well-known hymn in history. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. An amazing picture of what God can do to anyone 
take us from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Thanks be to God that he mercifully gives us that sight that we might behold the Savior and in beholding him, believe in him, and in believing in him, be saved. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Our great and mighty God, you are amazing. You are gracious to us, Lord, for once we were spiritually blind and, Lord, we, we lived our lives the way that we thought would be most pleasing to us. Lord, truly, we were content in our spiritual blindness, happy to be what we thought of as the gods of our own worlds, having no interest in Christ, seeing no need for him. And yet, Lord, you opened our eyes that we would see our sin, our need for Christ, and that we would approach him in faith. Have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, we thank you for your gracious and sovereign work in doing that. Lord, you are the saving God. And I pray that if there are any here this morning who realize that they are spiritually blind, would you open their eyes to Christ? Lord, that they would see their need for him that he is the only Savior, but that he is a sufficient Savior. For sin's smallest to the greatest, he is the Savior that deals with sin. We thank you, Lord, for providing us such a Redeemer. May we ever give him glory. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.